Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for that encounter. I ask God for your spirit as it hits us today, as it is processed all week with us. God, may we ask ourselves as well where we are to go next. In Jesus' name, amen. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, woke him up every day, made his to-do list every morning, set his quota for the concentration camps, arranged for more stonings, and built, oh, built, oh, built his popularity and respect amongst the people and gained more and more so that he could say, all I do is win. That's what he said every day. Beating breath and murder. That literally could have been Saul's slogan, right? All I do is win. All I do is win. It's not really as much fun as Emma Stone and uh, Jimmy Fallon. Um, and you may have remembered this from 2014 when they did the lip sync battle. Uh, you may have seen this. And if you haven't, you have to watch it. Uh, I would recommend that you skew all the way through to 5 minutes and 25 seconds. And at 5 minutes and 25 seconds, you will see the All I Do Win lip sync there. And uh, you will see that it is hilarious and uh, really, really, really funny. But this was not All I Do, uh, all I do Is Win for Saul. Because for Saul, All I Do Is Win was crushing for him. No, for Saul, All I Do Is Win is actually all about him. I was looking up uh, online all the presidential campaign slogans. I don't know if you've ever done that. Anybody ever done that? Looked up all the history of the presidential campaign slogans. It's actually kind of fun to do. It's a really worthwhile exercise. Um, and, and I decided to, to share a few of these with you. Uh, I, did not, I did not decide to choose only those presidents that had been elected, those who won, but I decided just to choose a few that I thought was kind of appropriate and maybe uh, would be kind of fun as well uh, and interesting as well. And so I, I began with, I don't know why this date picked up, 1844, um, but I began with 1844. So here's the very first one that happened in 1844. Henry Clay was running uh, against the president, and this was his campaign slogan in 1844. Who is James K. Polk? That was his very, very clever um, campaign slogan. Says a lot about uh, Henry Clay, right? He actually has nothing really to say. He's just like, well, who's the president? Uh, I don't know. I have nothing to say. I'm just like, I don't know who he is. He actually did not win, um, surprisingly. Yeah. Uh, he was just mocking the opposition. Uh, the next date that popped into my mind was nearly 1888, but it wasn't as good that one, so I went to 1884, uh, was James Blaine. And James Blaine was running against uh, Grosvenor Cleveland, who actually won. And this was James Blaine's um, campaign slogan. Ma, ma, where's my pa? Gone to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. I mean, seriously, that, that, was, that was long. I mean, do you know how many times they took to print those letters and lay them all out? Ma, ma, where's my pa? Gone to the White House. It's because he was accusing uh, his opposition party of sleeping around and fathering another child uh, from out of wedlock. 
very, very nasty politics, not like today. Um, uh, no, 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 back in 1884, no, they were very above board. Um, so let's uh, speed ahead 1900 years, 1988 nearly, uh, just a little bit more. Uh, and George Bush, George Bush became president with this uh, slogan, kinder, gentler nation. Kinder, kinder, gentler nation. And uh, it, was a good, it was a good slogan. And it actually, it, it got grabbed by lots of people uh, and became a mantra for many, many people, uh, not just for the presidential campaign, for many others as well. And, uh, and then we come to our current president. And of course, uh, with Donald Trump, you would think because of Twitter that there are lots of slogans. Um, and, uh, but there, actually, there were, there were not lots of slogans. There was just really one uh, slogan that he really resonated. And this clearly resonated with the powers that be that elected him. And this was a slogan. Make America great again. I know you're surprised, uh, right? You never heard that before. No? Right. So make America great again. So here's the question. When, when Donald Trump chose that, whether he chose that or whether his people chose that with him, because it must have resonated with him. Uh, you can't get up there and just say something and not believe that, right? Um, when he chose that or agreed to that, was he thinking when he said, when he said, make America great again, was he thinking, was this before the pilgrims landed? Was he thinking, when the Constitution was drawn up? Was he thinking after the Civil War? Was he thinking after the Civil Rights Movement? And truth is, is that you could ask this of every single president, truly. So don't read too much into what I just said here, because this was exactly the same dilemma for Seoul. At what points in history did Seoul draw his zeal from. Because that's what Trump did as president. He looked back on the history of America and said, if I'm going to make America great again, I've got to look back on history and say, this is what I think America is, and I'm going to draw on that. So Saul looked back on Israel and said, when he said this, he said, yes, we can. This is what Saul said, yes, we can. He said, make Israel great again, stronger together. That's what Saul was saying, right? And in order to do this, Saul said, I'm going to massacre everyone. I'm going to kill everybody in sight in the name of that goal. Could it be that Saul drew from a history that was maybe a little bit selective? Maybe his view of the history was not a complete picture? Could it be that Saul drew from the stories of Balaam the prophet, right? And you guys remember the story of Balaam the prophet, uh, where Balaam was asked to uh, curse the children of Israel. And he tries to do this, and uh, he's no success. Because <laughs> God's like, I don't, really, I don't really want you to do that. And the donkey has to turn around and say, no luck, uh, you're not going to be able to do this. So Balaam thinks of a very clever idea. He's going to hire prostitutes to tempt the men to leave Israel. And the men think to themselves, wow, look at all these prostitutes. And they leave their wives, their children. They leave God. They leave Israel. And they walk across the campsite to these prostitutes. Well, it turns out that the grandson of Aaron the priest, called Phineas, he takes a spear, sees one of these guys walking across the campsite, goes to prostitute, takes a spear, and literally impales uh, one of these couples in the act uh, inside their tent. And as a result of this, it's declared that this priest is a zealous priest, 
wow, this is a righteous priest, and his line will exist forever. So much so that Eli, when he's old, when he, when he has his children, he says, I should name one of my sons Phineas, because that's a sacred priest line, hoping that his glory would continue inside his children inside there. Maybe Saul had read the stories of Elijah, and he thought, well, Elijah, Elijah had killed 400 prophets of the prophets of Baal, because he wanted to clean house. Maybe Saul had read about the battles of the promised land, and he thought, I should do the same. Maybe he had read about Daniel, and he knew that the promised Messiah was coming. Maybe, maybe Saul had seen all the glorious power of Solomon conquering the sea and thought, man, I need to bring Israel to that kind of grandeur, make Israel great again. But he wanted to do that all the time, singing, all I do is win. Note that this is not about Israel. It was always about Saul. And you say, no, 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 I don't know. I'm, I'm not guessing this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to speculate about this. I'm going to prove this to you this morning, that this was always about Saul. And it's actually a confession that Saul admits to at some point. You know, every single week, people from all over the world and locally here contact this church, and they ask us for help. They reach out for help and for advice. And I, I don't know if you know this, but we're, I mean, we're, we're very busy as pastors and, and staff here at the church, but, but I hope that you don't feel that you can't contact us because you think we're too busy. I, I, it really pains me when I find out, I'm sitting down with someone and I find out that there's a lot going on in their life and I'm like, why don't you reach out to us? And that they think that we're either too busy or we've got too much on our plate. You can call us at any point. You can text us at any point. Here's the thing, I, I'll let you into a little secret. I, I have a little thing on my phone called the moon, a little moon, I just put it on at nighttime when I'm going to sleep. If it's an emergency and you call twice, it'll break through. Thank you, Apple. It's pretty amazing. It actually does break through. Otherwise, I sleep. Uh, I do. And so, I, otherwise, you can text at any time. There's no like zone of like, could I text the pastor now or not? No, you can text at any time you need to text, anytime you need to send email. Don't wait for the office hours. Contact, reach out, fill in a connect card today. If there's something going on in your heart that you need to talk about, uh, don't wait for that. So I received an email uh, this week, and uh, it was from this person. I, I was going to call her Eve, right? But then I realized that Eve is our producer today, so I can't do that. So we'll call her, we'll call her Yvette. All right. So Yvette wrote to me this week, and, and she said, hey, uh, I don't have any food. I don't have any gas money. I don't, I, you know, I, I don't have any rent. Can you, can you, as your church, pray for us? That's what she said. And I said, yeah, we, we will pray for you. Uh, we as church, pastor, staff will pray for you. But let's, let's not only pray for you, can we help you? Is there anything we do? And, and here's the thing, I have to, I don't know who these people are. I have to work out, are they local or are they somewhere in the world? So I have to try and find this out. So I'm dialoguing back and forth. And I said to her, where is your local church? Where is your local community? Can we connect you? Turns out she's somewhere far, far away, not local to us. And I encouraged her to connect to a local church. She said to me, no, I, I, I can't go. I, I trust my pastor. He, he would be very, very good. But the problem is that my pastor would have to talk to someone to help us. And if he talked to someone, the whole church would know. And I said to her, so let me get this right. Your church 
can help you, right? But, but you're not willing to go to your pastor and ask you because why? Because of the shame that they would actually know about it? Because their system is broken and they can't keep things confidential? Well, shame on them for not being able to do that right. But still, your kids are starving. You don't have rent. You don't have a way to live. You're going to have to deal with this. You're going to have to embrace this. I know it's embarrassing. Hey, I would love to be self-sufficient as well. I would love to be able to take care of everything myself, but I need help too. Everybody does, but our pride sometimes helps us from accepting help from those right on our doorstep. Even though Jesus is offering help every day, multiple times, right from your local community. So let's go to our very first question today. Inside your worship guide, if you turn inside your worship guide, uh, the very first recalibrate question that we have today for the message that we're looking at in Acts chapter 9. Why do we avoid or resist the road to Damascus experience? Why do we avoid or resist the road to Damascus experience? You know, Damascus was only 150 miles away, only. It's a long way away, 150 miles away for Saul. It is the oldest continually inhabited city in the entire world. All right? It was an obsession for Saul. He had to go through foreign territory to get there. He's stopping all the time, morning and evening, reciting the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohi, Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I mean, he says this morning and evening with his full prayer, seeking God, right, on this 150-mile journey to get to Damascus. And I wonder, as he's seeking God, looking for the voice of God, if that's when the light arrived. If, if Saul would have stood up from the prayer when this light hit him, expecting to see the face of God, right? Expecting to be rewarded for his diligence. Expecting maybe to know the truth of Daniel 9. Because he had been studying that, believe me, all of them had. Expecting to be affirmed for creating websites that are abusive and attacking, right? Maybe, maybe expecting to be applauded for being so mean to people. Oh, maybe he was expecting God to say thank you for being such a mean and abusive person and killing people. Oh, maybe that's what he was hoping for. Thank you, God, for sending angels to sing glory, 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 glory to you, soul. But never, but never expecting to see the one. Never expecting to see the man from Nazareth. And never expecting to see Jesus. Right? That's why sometimes when we read these texts, and I'm going to throw in this duplo-technic moment for you because it's just kind of fantastic. Um, when you read these texts, you kind of just like you read them and you just fly over them. And you just think, that was a good story. It's really simple. But there's just some incredible stuff that takes place inside of you. You think to yourself, man, I should know about this. And so I'm going to just show you this one here. And this one, this is just a bonus one for free because it's just so good. I had to show you this. So in Acts... In Acts chapter 9, and, and you have this in your Bible, and you can turn in Acts chapter 9, but, but I, I want you to do this real carefully because, uh, because um, I don't want you to read it uh, just yet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of let this kind of soak in there because I want you to kind of experience this 
with me because you know how there is, there's a kind of a discovery moment that you have and I want you to kind of discover this with me and kind of go, ah, I kind of got that, you know? It's like, it's like when you get a piece of chocolate, a little piece of chocolate, milk chocolate that's ginger and lime and it's wrapped up in green foil, right? And you unwrap the green foil and you open up this milk chocolate and you eat the ginger and lime and you're like, oh, that was good, right? I want you to experience this chocolate and just think, that was incredible. I didn't expect it to be that way. I thought it was going to be weird, but it is divine, right? So this is going to be this way. So you open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and you'll see this. You'll open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to do this. You're going to see it on the screen, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And as you do this in your Bible, you see, you're like, you open it up, and you're like, oh, that's an interesting passage inside there. And, um, and you'll, you will see, you'll see that there'll be a heading. It'll say, the light of the gospel. And you'll read the passage here, and you'll say, wow, that's rich. It's beautiful, it's fantastic, there's a lot of stuff inside it. But for our story today, I'm gonna to focus you just on that one final verse there, verse six. And it says there, for God who said, let light shine out darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you're thinking to yourself, that's a beautiful verse. I like it, I like it. Now place your mind in Saul, place your mind back in Acts, where he has just said the Shema, where he has been praying to God, where he has been hit by this light, all right, where he is looking for the glory of God, expecting it to be something else. And then Paul writes this book of Corinthians, and instead of just seeing this, now you see this, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? And that sentence kind of stands out in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Suddenly you understand that what Paul was writing here, confessing in 2 Corinthians here, is what took place on the road to Damascus. That as he was there looking, trying to understand, he's constantly seeking the glory of God. Is the glory of God an affirmation that everything I did was right? And he's looking for the glory of God. He'd never expected to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth. And he says, I write this and I read this. Because you can read these verses over and over again and you miss these sentences. So I underline this. So in my Bible, in Acts chapter 9, I've written down 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And I wrote my own cross-reference. You should do the same in your Bible as well so that you don't forget these moments inside here. So that you can kind of connect the dots between those places inside there. So why would we ever want to avoid the road to Damascus? Unless seeing the face of Jesus is too heavy for us. Unless we've created a picture of God that we can control, that we can master. But when we see who God is truly in the face of Jesus, it's just too overwhelming for us. See, small Saul was a very, very terribly, terribly, terribly smart fellow. He spoke four languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Latin. And he describes himself as Hebrew among Hebrews. He says that he could trace his line all the way back to the land of Benjamin. I remember the story of the, the tribes and you had Benjamin and Joseph, the special tribes and stuff. He was a Pharisee. He trained from the age of five in the Torah and memorizing literature. He understood the way. 
right? Said he was persecuting the people of the way from Isaiah 40, verse 3. He understood the way, what the followers were. And he was a Roman citizen to boot on top of all of this. There are times in Acts where it tells you that, that he will get arrested and they're about to kill him, but he can say, ah, 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 I have a, a passport. I'm a Roman citizen. And they're like, well, okay, we have to put you through trial. We can't just murder you. I mean, it saves him. He was trained by one of the greatest rabbis of the time, Gamaliel at the time. Now watch this. There were many rabbi schools at the time, but there were two in particular, Shammai and Hillel. And Gamaliel, the trainer for Paul, for Saul at the time, uh, he was the grandson of Hillel. And he said basically this, I'm going to teach you truth, and you get to decide whether you believe it or not. Is that reasonable? I think that's pretty reasonable. Saul was taught this way. He said, I want to teach you, Saul, how to pass the truth on. You teach people the gospel truth, and they get to decide. But there was another school, Shammai, who basically said this, you teach people truth, and if they disagree, you take them out. It's really simple. And by taking them out, it's Sicilian style. You kill them because you must persecute them with a zeal, put a spear through them, destroy them, take them out, I mean, absolutely, if they disagree. And so Saul's teacher, his entire life, was constantly say, teach them and let them decide. God's been calling him from the day he was born. Teach them and let them decide. But he was like, I don't like that. I want to teach them, and if they don't like it, I want to kill them. And he's struggling with this. Question number two that we have today then. What do you do, right? What do you do when the reality that lines up expects change? When everything that you've been thinking about in your entire life, and you start to think, everything I've been doing is over here, and all of a sudden, all the pieces fall into place, and you're like, oh my goodness, I actually need to change something. What do you do when that reality starts to line up? This is the most difficult situation he faces, because all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle start to line up. His teacher his entire life has been teaching him Teach the truth, let people to decide. It's what Jesus does with people, free choice. I mean, just imagine now he starts to remap all of this stuff. Jesus knew the gospel had to reach this place in Acts chapter 1. Remember we mentioned this a few weeks ago? Jerusalem and Judea, Peter and John, Samaria, he sent Philip. But he hadn't gone to the Gentiles. He needed to go to Rome. Now who has, let me see, who has the academic standing? Who has the zeal? Who has the energy? Who has the finances? Who has the Roman citizenship? Who has all the ingredients that would give him the access to go to be a prophet and a missionary to Rome? Hmm. If only they would choose to do that. Soul. So, let me open up this other idea for you too. What if, what if, in Romans 7. And I know we're going to touch Romans very soon. And, and I don't want to open up Romans 7 too much because, you know, there's a preacher who's going to preach on this in August. Uh, and he's going to want to unpack this fully. That's me. And so I don't want to, I don't want to like steal his thunder from that. But, but let, me just, let me just open up Romans 7 just a little bit, just a little crack, and then you'll be excited and like pull back some more on it. But what if in Romans 7, when Saul, who is Paul, and he breaks down the power of the law in Romans 7, and he says, you know, the law existed, and it was there, but I abused it. What if, in Romans 7, Paul, who was Saul, was telling us that uh, for three days while I was blind, 
um, and I was blind to that. I was blinded because that's actually what I wanted to be inside. What if in Romans 7, Paul was saying, who was Saul at the time, was telling us, I, I required the space to pause in my life. What if in Romans 7, Paul was saying, who was Saul before that, that I need to fast and pray and that we're being called to go to the mountains. People say, you know, sometimes I like to go to the mountains, right? But do you go to the mountains and actually spend time in the Word of God, or do you go to the mountains with your iPhone and with your music and with your conversation? Or are you really in with God about this? What if Paul was saying in Romans chapter 7 that uh, I have spent 20 minutes a day, but in fact, what I really need to do is actually spend deep, deep time with God. What if in Romans chapter 7 here, Paul is saying that I have kept all 10 commandments, including the Sabbath, right? But I just do it so I could look good to my friends. But in fact, I love my brother's wife. What if in Romans chapter 7, Paul, who was Saul, said, the thing that I cannot handle, the sin that I could not cope with, the one that no one knew about is that I want to be president. I want to be the king. I want to be the leader. I want to rule Israel. I want to be applauded. I coveted. That's what he says in Romans chapter seven. It's the sin. You look at the 10 commandments and all of them, he could check them all off. But the last one, number 10, it's the one that he actually covered up entirely. It's the one that he said, I struggled with the most. I coveted. I was dissatisfied with my life. And I had all this anxiety with my life. And I took it out on others. And the face of God, I created it. I took pieces from history and I mangled it together and I created the Israel that I wanted to do. I cherry-picked the stories. I ignored Jeremiah 31, 31. I ignored the gospel. I always thought that everyone was this way. And who was this Jesus Christ anyway? Why was he so popular? He was from Nazareth. I'm from Rome. I speak four languages. I'm rich. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I am who I am. Who are you, Jesus? Damn you, the world. I get to tell you what to do, and I will kill you. This drove him every day. That kind of anger, we do ourselves. We just cover it up with a smile every single morning. We cut each other up in our work, in our life, in our marriages, in our friendships. We smile and we stab each other and we just pretend everything's fine. But deep down inside us, coveting somebody else or something else creates the deepest dissatisfaction inside our lives that makes us unhappy, so unhappy that we beat ourselves up to death every single day. And then we hurt everyone around us, including ourselves. And Jesus knew this. And so in Luke chapter 10, he said, I have 72 disciples and I'm going to send them out in advance because I have all these pieces. I'm going to send a few. And you know what? Some of them are going to end up in Damascus and they're going to bring the gospel. And there's going to be a guy called Ananias. He's going to hear the good news. And he's going to become a follower of Jesus. And one day, 
he's going to talk to a guy called Saul. And one day, that guy Saul is going to become Paul. One day, that guy Paul is going to write 80 pages. And those 80 pages are going to change the world. And one day, Paul is going to sit in this place, and we're going to wake up, and we're going to say, wow, those 80 pages? Those 80 pages are founded on a man who understood that the glory of God was seen in the face of Jesus. And in the face of Jesus, he had to change it. It's because Saul was able to link his head and his heart. We are very good at keeping this separate from this. We're very good sometimes at feeling this, but then never thinking. We had to have them both together. And in those three days, not four, not seven, not one, but in three, three, the number of perfection, three, like three angels' ministry, three angels' messages, like the Trinity, like holy, 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 in three days, same time for Abraham to travel all the way up to Mount Moriah. In the three days, Jesus asked this question, what next? Which is our final question this morning, our final question that I have for you. Jesus says this, Jesus says, what do you want me to do next for the kingdom? This is what we ask. Jesus, what do we want to do next for the kingdom? That's what we have to ask Jesus. Not what is it, Jesus, that we're supposed to do for ourselves. Because this is what we do with salvation. We make salvation always just about ourselves. I'm saved. What do we do? Jesus came and died just for you. I know it's true. And he counts your hair. And some of you have more than me. I understand. It's true. It's fantastic. And he cares and he knows every single one of us. Right? But salvation in this story here doesn't happen outside of community. Paul, this guy Saul, this guy Paul, this same person here, he has this encounter with Jesus Christ, but he didn't know what to do with this. Jesus said to him, go sit and wait and be silent. Something's about to happen. And here's probably the most beautiful part of the story that I don't think we actually often read. And I kept it off for you guys. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles. It's page 1016, 1016 in your Bibles. But I want you to go there. It's Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 19. And I, I think the reason why I actually asked you not to actually study this uh, this week is because I wanted to kind of keep this part just for you uh, at the end here. But I think that it's really beautiful because I think that Luke does this on purpose. Luke wants us to be able to see something really, really special inside here. And he wants you to be able to understand that there's a journey inside here. So in Luke chapter, in Acts chapter 9 here, verses 10 to 19, it says that now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And just watch how he builds a story. He says, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias... Remember I sent you those guys and you found Jesus? That's good. He said, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight and the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he has seen a vision and a named a man named Ananias came and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, uh, you know what? I, I've actually heard from many about this man and, and how much evil has been done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, can you imagine this, and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus 
who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from the eyes, and he regained his sight, and then he arose and he was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Jesus is the one who chases. Jesus is the one who saves. And we are to be silent and accept the gift, right? Then we are to embrace the ones who have accepted the gift. We have a job to do. We are to be able to be the ones who say, brother, sister, and put our hands on those who have accepted the gift. For three days he ate nothing, he drank nothing, he saw nothing, and he talked with Jesus. And he wept dry tears on his scaled eyes. He took all that he coveted and he gave it to Jesus. And then he waited until one man, us, came and said, let me advance the kingdom of God against all risks. Let me live this gospel. I am really tired of all I do is win. We need to be the church that says all I do. We, all we do is love. That's what we have to be. The difficulty is that to say that we, all we do is love is that uh, we can't do it by ourselves, right? We have to be able to do this in the name of God. And the difficulty is that to do it in the name of God requires us to be a follower of God. To follow God requires us to be able to admit that we need God. And we don't like to have to admit that we need God. Because when you admit that you need God, you actually have to admit that you have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he starts to talk to you about the things that you covet. He starts to talk about the things that you hide. He starts to sort of things about the things that you have inside you. And when you do that, you have to face up to them. You can't suppress them, you can't put them aside, you have to address them. So, here's the prayer I have for you. It's in Deuteronomy chapter six. I'm gonna ask you as a church as we stand because we're gonna sing these last few songs together here as we respond to this thought. Deuteronomy chapter six. Hear, O Israel, hear, O Boulder. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Those are heavy words, my friends. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the front lets when he dies, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. God is saying everything about him is encapsulated in your home, in your morning and in the evening. I'm telling you, my friends, to love God, not something you just put right here. It's all, your head and your heart. Our brother Saul, on that day, said, all right, God, I give it all to you. And when he did that, his life changed in Christ alone.